0: Give us some men who know the truth
1: and who will declare the truth and who will stand with Athanasius and Polycarp and Calvin and Luther and Whitfield and Edwards and who will declare from the housetops that the gospel is the power of
0: God unto salvation. serious
1: Hello children. Hey there. See you heard it. You heard it. I'm we're back. here. Alright, you ready? This is we're here. It's been a while because holidays and people have lives and things like that, but we're here to tell you that everything is broken east of Eden.
0: Oh man. Quite <laughs> <Yeah. That's
1: cool. laughs> an
2: opening statement. Yes. But it's, I would agree.
1: It's going to be one of those days. Forget Christmas. Christmas is over. The good feelings from the holidays are ended. We are back to pain and misery and suffering now. <laughs>
2: Back to normal. There you go. No.
1: <laughs> it's been a few weeks, but we've had a couple of things that have come and gone, a couple of things to talk about, but this is going to be our second weird episode in a row. Okay. Because remember, before Christmas, we went through all the Christmas songs. No one lynched us for that, so we're good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I, today, came up with an idea. Oh, boy. <laughs> don't, don't you look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, I have to, I have to process that <laughs> statement. <laughs> and I, it's, be, it's been based on seeing the world around me and some of the the historical things that I've been reading. And it relates to this idea of living east of Eden. So okay. let me, now, perfect case in point. You, listener, are hearing this in the exact same real time that Lou is hearing this. Mm-hmm. I have not given him a heads up the thing we were going to talk about i threw out the window okay. i have no notes in front of me we are just we are tom petty today we are free fallen
2: <laughs> nice i was actually thinking of that oh, so that's...
1: hopefully we do not splat upon a reentry so <clears throat> all right okay reasons for my thought before i give you my thought all right, all right. so all right. Okay. stipulations theologically based okay so okay. this is where you can critique and evaluate. Seven seven
2: oh my goodness! Uh oh! Trying to get rid of all Uh-oh. Of those. nuts. The
1: color-coded rapture chart guy entered. Has entered he the chat. He did. Chain. He actually did. Like, just... Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Sorry. It's The sign of the beast.
2: He is. He's... Now
1: is that the prophet or the beast or is that the dragon or the antichrist? And oh, our... oh this this
2: this guy's a real trip. Every once in a while, I'll he'll he'll he'll. he'll, he'll be on my feet and
1: lose hate watching the dispensation the dispensationalists
2: i am i'm like shaking my head every time they open their mouth
1: so all right theological stipulations that form the a priori assumptions that are being made here we have a sovereign god right therefore there are no accidents either by his direct miraculous intervention in his creation or by his providential governance of his creation okay so one is active one is passive from a human perspective. Okay. Both are active in eternity. Make sense? Okay, yes. But in the real time here and now, one is active, one is passive. The miraculous is the active working. The providential governance of God is the passive working. The things that have been laid out from eternity, like, you know, how tall you are is the providential working of God because that is determined by who your ancestors are, who your great-grandparents were, what what continent they settled on, all that good stuff.
2: I don't have a lot of providence if we're basing <laughs> it on my height. <laughs>
1: You know, your hair color, your eye color, these are all providential governings of God. Mm-hmm. There are no surprises in his kingdom. Open theism is a heresy. We throw it out the window. So that's stipulation one. Stipulation two, God does not give you what you want. Rather, God gives you what you need, either in his wisdom for discipline, in his wisdom for blessing, or in his, dis- in his wisdom for judgment. And God is doing all of those things all of the time for various people. So far, so good?
2: Yes, sounds good.
1: Okay. Stipulation number three. The world is messed up. Okay. Right? We live... Yeah,
2: I'd go with that. We
1: we get stipulated. (laughs) We live east of Eden. We live in a fallen world. As I said Sunday, we live in a world full of sinful people doing sinful things to sinful people sinfully.
2: Yes. (laughs) Very well said.
1: So, with all of that said, I have a question is it possible probable likely insane you know pick your blank that should be filled in there that the church and i'm using the term church to to refer to the people of god new testament old testament that the people of god do not and cannot function in this side of the veil apart from a sinful broken world Hmm. now let me flesh this out everybody wants the world to be a better place right christians don't want you know x y or z being exposed to their kids on a regular basis you wish that the movies you could watch were better quality or you know the morality that was being all of these things you know is it possible though that the people of god were never meant to between eden and the kingdom we're never meant to function outside of a broken world. And when they try to function outside of the workings of a broken world, they create brokenness themselves.
2: I think that's a pretty fair statement. I think the people of God, when, when you know, living in a world it's broken, we're east of Eden, we're, we're to be the salt and the light. We're to live our lives as an example to people who are looking for something better, you know, something eternal. And so I, I don't like you said. I don't know that we were made to operate outside of that. This well, this side of the return, so, maybe. So
1: we're we're talking about <clears throat> the period between east of Eden and the other side of the veil. Mm-hmm. So between Eden and the veil. <laughs> that's that's the world that I'm discussing. And what I'm what I'm thinking through is we're all forever and this is i mean and i say we when i say we i mean a lot of the western church okay mm-hmm. which is you and i are part of that mm-hmm. we live in a western culture we live in a church culture so the western church has spent a great deal of time the last let me round it off 50 years trying to influence and change culture for the better and still is So we want to try to create Christian movies so that we can bring good morality into the cultural sphere. The goal of this is not just to provide entertainment for Christians. It is to provide Christian entertainment for the masses as a way of trying to raise the discourse of entertainment. To try and make sure that Christianity is brought into the the zeitgeist of the world around us. And the thing that I'm wondering as I'm looking at history and the world around us is if that's a fool's errand. And, okay, let me give you reasons why I think this, okay? A couple historical examples. So this will be a 30,000-foot a view of a 30,000-foot view of history. <laughs> Make sense? Mm-hmm. We're like the, t- the telescope looking at the flight data, and the flight data is trying to look at the world. Okay. So look at the Christian church. Where and when has it functioned best in history?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I would say when it's being persecuted and scattered abroad I think that God as you stated earlier there were some providential workings mm-hmm. I think he works inside of those those epochs of time where where the church is 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 seeing more and more persecution and I think we're starting to see that again so I, I, I think we're going to see more providential work in, in agreed the
1: world. and I think the argument I'm trying to make here is that's a good thing
2: yeah, I don't right, know if I'm making right.
1: a specific argument yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm again. I'm working this out in real time while I was it, thinking it, about this. it, while it doesn't I was there, I feel
2: good. I think it it works out for the best because so, we don't get the, we're, like you just said. We're at that thirty thousand foot yes. view, but then there's God above us that sees everything. And that's where
1: I'm trying to get to and how I'm seeing things. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like the church in the the church of the Book of Acts, persecution from the Roman authorities a little bit persecution from the Jewish synagogue authorities ramped up. Oh, yeah. When you get post-acts, you still have persecution from the synagogue, and you still ha- and you have an increased persecution from Rome. That's going to be the reality, especially in the Roman end, for the next, what, 200-plus years? From the end of the 1st century into the early 4th century, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Now, yeah. We don't see a relief until Constantine... Makes the religion. Yeah, it was
1: that? 319, 320? Yeah, Don't yeah. quote me on that, children. It will not do you good. No, it's, three, it's three, uh, Edict of Mulan, 313. Right, right. Oh, Mulan, look at, look at, yes. Not Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yes, it was some Chinese. Mulan. Yeah,
2: yeah Mul- Milan. Mulan, Mulan. I, yeah. <sighs>
1: I, I like the Edict of Mulan better. <laughs> Freudian slip. I've been watching too many kids' shows. Yeah, show. I'm telling you. I, I know the feeling. <clears throat> Cameron tried to put on Christmas music today. I'm like, no. No more, No, huh? it's You're over. done? No, it's over. You're you're not allowed. You have to wait till December of next year. (laughs) Uh. So so Edict of Milan 313, that makes Christianity tolerated, and I never remember the emperor, but it's – I want to say – do not quote me on this. I want to say it's Theodosius, who's like the grandson or the great-grandson of Constantine, and he not only moves Christianity beyond tolerated, but he moves it into official territory, and I want to say that's 385. Now, that creates a world in which the church isn't just allowed to function like we are today. We live in a society where the church is allowed to function. Right. At that point, the church is a, a legal empowered entity. I would argue the church today in America is not an empowered entity. We are legally tolerated, but we are not legally empowered. So I can't, I can't compel you by force of law to come in. But is as of 385, you could in the Eastern Roman Empire. You had the force of law as bishop or priest. So what does that create? Tension. It not only creates tension, but it creates a worldliness. It creates a secular hierarchy in the church. And you will see that, here again, beyond a 30,000-foot view. You will see that for the next uh, 14 1,500 years? Yeah, I
2: don't think it was a good thing for for the church to be mixed with the—mixing the the powers in church and state and stuff like that. I'm not sure that was a good thing.
1: So what ends up happening? The church solidifies its power and then immediately begins to do what? Persecutes dissidents with the power of the state. And that's going to be true of, air quotes, Christendom until the 1700s, give or take? I mean yeah. you could you're you're I want I want to say the last burning of separatists in England is in the 1600s. Is it 1600s? Yeah. You've got I, the I crusade, think the Spanish
2: you got the inquisitions, yeah. you've got
1: I said I think the Spanish Inquisition goes yeah. well into the 1700s. Yeah. And the into, a lot of the work in the New World, the wiping out of native tribes and things like that, a lot of that is sanctioned by conversion at the sword. I'm not saying it's the driving force behind it, but it's sanctioned by that. Oh well, yeah. So that moves you into the 18th century. So yeah, at that point, you're talking about 4th century and 18th century, 1,400 years of history where the church is not just tolerated, but it is empowered, and therefore it has to create conflict. Because at our core, Christians are a people living in conflict. We are in conflict with our own natures. We are in conflict with the sin around us. We are at war with the powers and principalities at work in the world around us. Now, give us the authority of those powers and principalities, and what do we fight? I don't know. Yeah. Because I think the problem is we start turning our guns on each other. Part of the driving force to this was um, the—I'm reading a book on the English separatists. Okay. And going through some of their history from around the— the early 1500s to the mayflower voyage. So, this is a group of this is a group of Protestants who are separating from the Church of England because they see within the Church of England the structures and functions and heresies that they saw in Rome.
2: Talking about Puritans? Yes. Heard, okay.
1: This these are the these are the kind of the precursors of the Puritans. Okay. So, what they saw was, well, you got rid of the pope. Great. You replaced him with the monarch. And to this day, the supreme governor of the Church of England is. You know who this? Do you know who today's supreme governor of the Church of England is? The highest authority in the Church of England. Oh, the king. It's King Charles. King Charles, yeah. It was Queen Elizabeth II. Now it's King Charles. It is that is the supreme governor of the of the Anglican communion, the Church of England. So they're looking at this, going, "You replaced the Pope with a king, or a queen, in their case, with Elizabeth the First. Um, You replaced bishops with bishops. Mm -hmm. You didn't separate from everything, anything. You replaced the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church with the Book of Common Prayer. It's the same system. You're rejecting the spiritual empowerment of pastors. You're rejecting the work that the church is supposed to be doing in favor of an ecclesiastical structure. You're creating a church of sheep and goats because you're saying that everyone who lives here is Christian by virtue of the fact that they live here and we baptize them. Right. So in other words, the argument became, how are you different from Rome again?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what happened is they get burned, they get persecuted, they get driven out. A lot of the separatists leave, go to the Netherlands. Now you're free, right? Mm. You took your 75 families or 75 people, you got on a boat, you're in the Netherlands. The Dutch don't care. The Dutch don't care what you do. <laughs> they've left you. like They don't even have the people in, in, the, in the cities they've settled and don't even speak English. And none of the settlers speak Dutch. So, like, they can't even talk to the people around them. There was actually some theological arguments between some of the Dutch Reformed churches and some of the English separatists. And you know how they communicated with each other? Hmm. In writing in Latin. Wow. Because that they they could write theological treatises in Latin so they could communicate doctrinally with one another. <laughs> That's amazing.
2: What was the name of that book?
1: Um, Journey to the Mayflower, I think. Yeah, I borrowed it from the library. I should finish it tomorrow. But what's fascinating to me is... So you're this congregation of English separatists. You have a pastor or two. You have a small congregation of between 60 and 300 people okay. in some of these churches. Do you know what they immediately started to do? Hmm. Divide. Okay. They started to divide. One, um, two brothers who are both pastors start fighting with each other because one of them married this woman and one of the brothers thinks she's immodest and to the point that they excommunicate each other from the church over whether or not his wife is dressing appropriately. I mean, family structures, how you said private prayers, one guy gets excommunicated because he doesn't like the dude who comes to court his daughter, and so he chases him off with a weapon, and the church excommunicates him for it. It's, It's the entire history of the English separatists in the Netherlands, is of theological argument and division. Like, one of the guys is arguing with himself because he was baptized in the Church of England. But they've separated from the Church of England. Therefore, the Church of England is an apostate church. Therefore, his baptism is apostate. Therefore, they need to come up with a way wow. to baptize people into the church. But the Anabaptists who are in the Netherlands are also an apostate church. so they are invalid to baptize people into the church so how do we form a true church of christians and the solution they came up with was they dissolved their church and they couldn't have a morning prayer because none of them were baptized into the church so none of them were legally allowed to have prayer in their in their ecclesiology and then the pastor baptizes himself Okay. And then he baptizes the other elders, and then the elders of the church baptize the Corinthians, and now they are constituted as a true church. And then later on, the guy has to get re-baptized because he discovers after having correspondence with the Anabaptists that they are a true church and that he could have gone to them for baptism, so his self-baptism is invalid. <laughs> wow, what a twisted story. Now, you're looking at that going, dude, you fled England so you wouldn't die, mm-hmm. and this is what you want to fight over? This is the hill you want to die on? You want to talk about straining out gnats while swallowing camels? This is what it looks like. Now, this got me to thinking. Okay. Yes, I want the world to be a better place as far as more Christian looking. But if that form is accomplished in any way other than the fact that the entirety of the culture becomes Christian... It's going to devolve into petty arguments and theological nitpicking the likes of which we have never seen. Because that's the history of God's people. And even if it were accomplished in that manner, it would devolve into theological nitpicking and arguments the likes of which we have never seen. Which is why I think... Here's, here's kind of the summary of my grand thought here. Why I think we need not be surprised because the church, the people of God, are supposed to be a tiny minority. Yeah. Because the minute we're not, we burn the place down faster than the pagans do. Because we're sinful people doing sinful things to other sinful people sinfully. It's Romans 7. Yeah. I want to do good. I want to have a pure church. I want to have this. How do I go about getting it? The testimony of history is, godly men and women destroying one another in the names of doctrinal and theological purity.
2: I think Paul warns Timothy of those same things as he's teaching. Um, he's like, don't get involved with all of these vain disputations about you know lineage and law and all of these things. Just teach the word. Is what he tells Timothy. And remember everything that Paul went through and how he struggled everywhere he went.
1: And so I'm looking at this world and I'm going, I think in general, most of our warring on the cultural front is a vain exercise. Yeah, I mean— and i know what I, I know that i'm I'm arguing against a lot of the political processes we undergo and i'm not telling you not to vote or things like that but at the same token like some of the stuff like one why did the guy originally think the anabaptists were a false church
2: that's what i was thinking to myself what's what are the reasons behind all of that
1: they had a weird theology on the incarnation that was the only thing that would be even close to valid and they had this theology that said that while Jesus grew in Mary's womb, he took none of his flesh from Mary. Okay. Now, I, now, you want to talk about the picking of a theological knit here? Yeah. This is an example. I mean, I guess you can get into some questions about the deity and all, but anyway. The other arguments were, oh, my brain just blanked. Um, they wouldn't work for the government. That was one of the big things for the Anabaptists. They would not work for the government. They thought that was anathema because all governments were religious in nature at this time in history, and therefore that would be a sanctioning of a state church which was Antichrist. So lived even if you weren't a member of the National Dutch Church, mm-hmm. you couldn't work for the county office because that would be giving approval to the anti national church. Wow. and that was viewed as something that was undoable.
2: That's interesting how that gets equated to. Sorry,
1: got to turn that heater off. It's yeah. <laughs> starting to cook Some in here. Warming up. Yeah. So, th- again, these are arguments where you're going, huh. Like, okay, I get where if you don't want to have this discussion on a regular basis, you would end up with a different congregation. But to sit here and anathematize each other and to kick people out over this sort of thing is insane. It's absolutely insane.
2: And What's what's strange to me is they were fleeing religious persecution only to begin persecuting each other the minute they land, wherever it was they landed yeah. in the Netherlands.
1: And the Netherlands aren't giving them any persecution. They end up leaving the Netherlands to come to the New World, mm-hmm. and there's no real rhyme or reason as to why they ended up here because they weren't being persecuted. They were only persecuted because they went back to England and refused to join the state church. Okay. They had freedom in the Netherlands – they went back to England and then tried to settle over here. And the only difficulties that they had were amongst each other. Like, they got what they wanted. They were a free church to worship how they saw fit. And within 20 minutes, it devolved into chaos. Wow. Now, again, look at, the, look at the heresies, the Christological heresies of the early church. Where do they flare up? They start flaring up in the 2nd century when the church is remarkably at peace. Because there's major persecutions, what, middle first century, Mm -hmm. end of the first century, but there's a pretty long window. Because remember, persecution from Rome was not constant, it had its ups and downs and its ebbs and flows. There's a kind of a peaceful period in the middle of the second century where there's not a ton of persecution. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Where did the Christological heresies start to crop up? Middle of the second century. When you start to see legal status and toleration in the fourth century, what do you begin to see in the fourth century? major Christological and theological heresies crop up. All of these things start to crop up when? When the church thinks it's at its most at rest. In other words, we start picking theological nits. We start coming up with crazy ideas because we don't have the actual thing in front of us that we're supposed to be warring against, which is the culture. And I don't mean warring against the culture as in we got to change it, but I mean warring against the culture as in an internal battle. The purity of myself against the sinful world, fighting against the stain and presence of sin around me by the powering of the Holy Spirit. This, when that gets removed, we end up destroying ourselves. And this is true everywhere. Look at the explosions of Protestantism. Where do you see all the divisions of Protestantism? You see it primarily in countries where Protestantism really took hold. You see it in Switzerland, you see it in Germany. You see theological innovations in that end of Europe where you were able to actually have areas under Protestant rule and protection. You see less theological um, novelty coming out of France, why? Because you're having the big conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics. You see less theological novelty coming out of England, why? Because there's an actual persecution going on amongst the Protestants. And even then you could argue that With that Protestant kingdom that you're seeing the novelty of separatism. And that's where the first Baptists basically come out of. Not the Anabaptists, but Baptist Baptists. And so I'm just wondering if we as Christians need to be a lot more comfortable in a world that is Antichrist. Because it always has been. And this side of that veil, it always will be. And there's actually almost as much danger in... Christian-appearing culture as there is pagan-appearing culture. It's just the danger comes in a different direction. Right. But it's always there. Listen, this is not a fully formed idea here. I'm, I'm, I'm operating on a theory here. Which so, I mean...
2: Well, one of the things that I, it comes to my mind... Okay, so we want to affect change in the communities that we live in. Mm-hmm. So, in my opinion, I think the best way to do that is, is is discipleship of the people who are here And yes, I'm all for evangelism, but that has to come at a it, it, it's not going to happen at a as a fast rate you know like you know crusade style uh-huh. uh, but in the meantime I think we can actually reach more people by by being disciples who make disciples And I think that's how we I think the end game there is how we effectively change our societies and our cultures because we've we've persevered we have taught the word of god in season and out of season and and our children are now doing the same and our children's children are doing that too so
1: let me let me is that uh, no no i agree with you okay and i think that i think this is going to make sense in a second so let me put a concrete example here okay let's just say you went to a restaurant last week at the end of your meal Give the waitress your card or whatever, and when you're going to leave, receipts are handed out, everybody's good, you know, you don't need change or whatever, and every and then, then what, what does the waitress say to you? Last week? Yes. Merry Christmas. No, she doesn't. What would the waitress say?
2: Mine did, but okay. Oh,
1: well, you got a rarity. Yeah. What happens if she looks at you and goes, happy holidays?
2: I do the same. <laughs> happy holidays to you. Now,
1: but how many people go, it's Christmas, we celebrate Christmas. Right. Why are we annoyed? We're annoyed because we feel like we've lost some hegemony in the culture. And I get it.
2: Does that happen to you where you've, you've been somewhere and they yes. wish? Okay. And, it's,
1: right. and, and it catches you mm-hmm. and it stops. Now, I usually don't care and every once in a while I do. But I noticed this because this is always one of those. Remember we had the war on Christmas a few years ago and things like that. It's one of those things though where it immediately hits folks where it's, We've lost some sort of general again I guess again, I'm gonna go with hegemonic uh, control over the system of the world where the world's like they're not acknowledging my holiday <laughs> and I think the point that I'm trying to drive at is they're not gonna right right they're And not. you shouldn't want them to right and right
2: it, it okay. I see where you're coming from. yeah. Well,
1: it, but too often the thing that upsets us – hold that thought. Mm-hmm. Too often the thing that upsets us is our veneer has been stripped away, and we're trying to figure out how to get it back.
0: Hmm.
1: And I think when I'm looking at history, we're better off if we don't.
2: No, I, I think I agree with what you're saying. I, I think I understand you now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look at me. I made a point. And it made sense. <laughs> how long have we been
2: talking, and I'm just now getting it. Yeah. Do do
1: you see what I'm saying? We live in a world, and we all have this about something. Like like you drive, like you go on vacation for something, and you're gone for a weekend, and you're driving on a Sunday, and you're like, why are all you people on the road? Shouldn't you be at church? Mm -hmm. Like go to church. There was a day in this country when the stores were closed and you couldn't buy beer at 9 a.m. on a Sunday. Those were the, you know. We do this stuff Mm -hmm. because we've lost the cultural influence. And I'm starting to wonder like really, really hard. If that's a good thing,
2: I and, think it is.
1: I I, and, I mean, I've always thought it was a little bit of a good thing. But I'm sort of like, like this is a really, really good thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think when you start to see, you'll you'll start to see people live in their faith a lot more intentionally. You'll start to see things like what you just described in a restaurant not be so um, offensive, but you. you the people of faith will understand that the people around them are pagans. They're just doing what pagans do. And, they're be- and, and, and for the fact of the matter of them saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, that shouldn't be offensive.
1: Agreed. Now, here's the, <clears throat> here's the counterintuitive part for, I think, most people. Mm-hmm. When you say the more the culture is pagan, the more we will live out our faith,
0: mm-hmm.
1: be honest. Shouldn't it be the other way around, though? Like, the more that the culture agrees with us, shouldn't it be more comfortable and easier to live out our faith? And Not, I think the weird—
2: well, I, I don't know. Not necessarily. The, the the scenarios that you just gave about the uh, uh, the pre-Puritans moving to the Netherlands, and they have this perfect opportunity to live out their faith, and what it, happens? It's a
1: train wreck.
2: It's an absolute train wreck.
1: It's like 15 chapters of train wreck. It's It's fascinating.
2: But doesn't it seem like— when there's, a, 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 okay, so you're living in a society that is largely falling away from Christian values and morals and advocating things that are, are just horrendous mm-hmm. to a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're seeing that the people of faith have to come together and agree on some things, perhaps, and they don't have a choice. Otherwise, they're going to be, mar- they're going to be completely marginalized mm-hmm. in society if they don't get it together. I think that's what we're seeing.
1: And and my point is I actually think we're better off. Yeah. It doesn't feel like we're better off because I don't want to live in that world, but I don't get that choice. And at the end of the day, this is part of what I think it looks like when we say the goal of theology is the thinking of God's thoughts after him. Is This is one of those areas where it starts getting dialed up to 11, that I need to be a lot more comfortable as not necessarily even a vocal minority, but just as a as a stranger and an alien, as as first Peter two would tell me to live. And I don't know if Christians have felt like strangers and aliens in a long time. Right. And We're so, very
2: comfortable. Well I think this is a Western problem.
1: Agreed. But but that's where we are, yeah. and so the fleshing out of this problem becomes, though, how do I live out my faith in a world that is so broken? How do I live out of my faith in a world that is so against everything that I stand for? And I think the the corollary to the con to the thought that I'm having is that it's like you said, it's actually easier because now I'm more conscious of who I am in the world and what the world actually looks like. The Holy Spirit's you know over there rubbing his palms together, going, "Oh yeah." now it gets good because now you're paying attention now you're thinking now you're evaluating you've turned off the autopilot mm-hmm. and that's a good thing and it's a thing that should always be the case for the Christian and it's not when we have a an umbrella culture that agrees with us and so the counterintuitive thought becomes yes, it should be simple for me to live out my faith in a culture that appears Christian.
2: Well, I think we're seeing signs of those things that you just described in that book in our country, with all of the different denominational differences that we have with other folks. Uh, I mean, there's constant room. For, there's constant uh, arguing back and forth about it, th- everything. Wasn't
1: that the entirety of the 20th century? Sure. Now, like, why doesn't that? Why doesn't that theological diversity occur in Poland? I
0: don't know. Well, yeah, because if you go through,
1: because for most of the 20th century, the Soviet Union
2: ran Poland. Yeah, and there was no opportunity for There's religious expression. There's no opportunity expression. for any of that. Yeah, I mean, there was religious expression. So, yes, they just not, did it underground. Yeah,
1: like why isn't there this kind of theological, you know, novelty in Ukraine or one of the stands? And that's because it was Soviet. You mm-hmm. didn't have this. Army. You didn't have that freedom.
2: Same, same thing in China. Yeah, you had
1: to hold. You had to hold to some pretty narrow definitions here move to the western world where does theological liberalism comes from the heart of christendom yeah it, it comes out of it comes out of germany it comes out of the heart of the holy roman empire where do you then see that as christianity dies in mass as christianity dies in mass in central europe where do you begin to start seeing theological novelty come from you start to see it in the anglican communion hmm. as it moves west right okay and then once it takes hold where do you see it then now in the united states what have you seen throughout the 20th century you've seen the rise of pentecostalism both orthodox pentecostalism and the crazy weird aspects of pentecostalism you see the uh, scientology you see the uh, explosion of mormonism in the 19th and 20th century the Jehovah's witnesses are a 20th century yeah, phenomenon I was, gonna ma- I was
2: gonna mention them too
1: um oh shoot what's that other group um Anyway, I've lost it. Well, my
2: favorite is the Black Hebrew Israelites.
1: <laughs> but there's late 20th century, right? Coming out of what? Yeah. Coming out of the Northeast in, in the in the, what the 1970s, mm-hmm. in a culture that is basically Christian.
2: Right. British and, Israelism too. I mean, that's the polar opposite, but it's it's almost the same theology.
1: All in all, coming out of a culture that people would have said are Christian. Right. Coming out of a culture that would have appeared from the outside looking in to be good. Mm -hmm. And yet you get corruption and you get dissension and you get division because we're built in this world between Eden and the veil to fight something. I don't think we can help it. Mm -hmm. And when we stop training ourselves to fight against sin and its influences in our daily lives, we end up turning those guns on something and when you have mm. a culture that is predominantly air quotes christian in appearance mm-hmm. i think the inclination from the pagans who are trapped in that culture is to even come up with even better theological novelties to create division and destruction again what's what's the only sin that's really in existence from the enemy did god god really say really say yeah. and now look at all of these little look at all these little groups we name so like the christian science is just its own little bag of insanity so throw that one off to the side mm-hmm. but mormonism joseph smith could, why is the why is the book of mormon written in king james english because that was the bible of the day yeah and that's how joseph smith thought god talked <laughs> that's how he thought god spoke so that's how he wrote it
0: mm-hmm.
1: what do you have you have the borrowing of the story of israel and you have it Dramatized into the new world, and mm-hmm. then you have theological innovation that arises out of that. Yeah, what do you get with Jehovah's Witnesses? Almost the same thing because they use the same text, twisting of Scripture, yep. just subtle little adjustments. The BHI, that mm-hmm. Black Hebrew Israelites. What is that? We're going to take a slight twisting of this verse over here and a slight twisting of this verse over here, and we're going to create a brand new cultural footing for ourselves. And if you're not really well versed, this is. I'll give them credit on this. If you're not really well versed in your Old Testament history, and you listen to one of their presentations just on the history, you would almost be able to go, I can see where you got that." I, I, imagine if you had like just a cultural understanding of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So like you know there's an Adam and Eve, you know that Abraham existed you, you know that Moses you know that Moses was the Exodus and Noah had the ark and David was a king. You have no real idea who Elijah and Elisha are. Mm-hmm. You have no idea about what the Exodus accomplished or how the prophets pointed back to it to get the people back. to tr- You don't know any of that. Now listen to some of the BHI presentations on the history and what the verses mean. I could see people going, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. The faith healers do this all the time. They take an Old Testament verse about healing the nations and things like that, and they put a little twist on it. And if you don't know anything about the context of that verse, you could sit there and go, that makes sense. I see where you got that.
2: That is so hard for me to do to these days. I mean, I mean, you and I have both been through seminary, and and we learn how to read in context. and 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 for when I see people twist the scriptures like that, it I think I stop and I'm like, how do they? I mean, I just just with a plain reading of this, you, you can't really get there from that.
1: Agreed, but that's not a plain reading, and they don't do that. <clears throat> they don't. How many air quotes Orthodox churches do sermons in that manner? We pull a verse from here and a verse from there and we come up with a story and the moral of the story is this and now go live your lives. How do they say that a text in search of a pretext? A search a text without does... context is a pretext for something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that.
2: Yeah, that's I, no. I I'm not a completely against topical preaching but I am. at the same time <laughs> well we we do it but we do it line <laughs> by line, right? Because you didn't just and we, we were we were preaching through Colossians and the next thing you know we're we're doing faith, hope, you know,
1: peace. There's a way to do it exegetically though.
2: Exegetically, right. So we we are doing an ad, but not in the way that normal Yeah.
1: When top- I do when I say topical preaching, what I define topical <clears throat> is we're gonna talk about a topic. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. When I do the advent meanings, mm-hmm. I'm going out to find a text that the point of that text is hope. And now let's exegete this text and talk about hope because mm-hmm. it's there. Like, I'm not just going to go find it someplace and be like, oh, we're going to pull this out of Genesis, right. we're going to pull this out of First right. I Peter. I think
2: people misunderstand that. No, no, but, no I but,
1: know, but that's because you're using a technical definition, and I'm right. using the popular definition because I recognize where people sit most of the time. Mm-hmm. But why do so many Christian churches— that are, air quotes, orthodox in the filing cabinet. That was always a great description to me. They're orthodox in the filing cabinet, but everything else they do is who knows what. How do these orthodox in the filing cabinet churches, why are they sitting there giving you feel-good sermons, topically organized, where the Bible is basically a twizzler that has been tied in 17 knots and presented to you as something chewy that you can dissolve? Hmm. There's a mental image for you.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to process that right now. but You're welcome.
1: Why do, they, why do they function like that? Because they're comfortable. Right. Because they have a toleration status— and there's no pressure on them to be better. There's no pressure on them to care about doctrine and the basic things of God more than the needs of the congregation or the world around them.
2: I, I think they believe that that's where their people mm-hmm. will be best served and that's where they're at. Agree. I, I read the article. I thought we were going to do the, the pre-Christmas thing, and we've got these – these large congregations mm-hmm. that have several services and
1: thousands and, of people.
2: Yeah, in thousands, twenty thousand. I read, mm-hmm. and food trucks and all. I mean, they're spending money on fireworks and, but, but they want to take that day off, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow. And the reason is because most people want to be at home in their pajamas.
1: Yes, that's
2: and and, and that's why I think topical preaching no. is the way it is because they
1: they're trying to find the people where they're at. Now here's a perfect example we're looking at this group of Christians most of them are probably believers mm-hmm. I have no, no questions about that I don't think it's a church full of pagans but we're now at war with them in some shape form or fashion over a theological novelty
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you're not going to gather the novelty that we're warring over is you're not going to gather on the day that you normally gather now if you're under persecution the only reason you wouldn't gather on the day you normally gather is because we're all going to die mm-hmm. and even then we'll just gather someplace else like that's not a conversation an argument to be had when you're not allowed in the culture so we're not so this goes to your point Mm -hmm. we're not going to express our faith even though it's easy because we don't want to whereas if the government and the culture at large is trying to make it impossible for us to express our faith you better believe we'd be trying see that's my point so we're not meant to be the majority and the minute we find ourselves being the majority we better start asking a lot of questions about ourselves and how we're living right Because I think that says more about about us than it does the culture at large. Mm -hmm. And so when I look back at biblical history and I look back at church history and I look back at the history of cultures in general, God's people are not meant to be in control of things. We don't work well when we do it. We make it a train wreck when we do. I mean think about this. The Puritans that that took over Mm England were so bad that the people wanted the king back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, realize that when Perfect. that when that English Revolution ended, they la- they ended up with a king again. Why? Because people were like, "This is intolerable. <laughs> we don't want to put up with you people anymore. Get Cromwell and his cronies out of here."
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, we don't do well with power. We never have. Look at the kings of Israel. Oh yeah. Even when they were good kings, given power, what do they become?
2: Oh, they were horrible. They they took all of the resources. They Man, they, they subjugated their own people.
1: Because we're, we're meant to be a wartime minority. And the Holy Spirit's not taking that wartime mentality out of you.
2: Well, what I think, and this is just me on the fly thinking, I think that when we insist on being the ones in charge, that we mess it up every time. Instead of recognizing the king of kings... Who, who, who was in charge until they rejected him right there in the And changes side.
1: the hearts and minds of men.
2: Only he does.
1: So, and, and this is something we've right. always been on about, is that yeah. discipleship and evangelism, and evangelism primarily through discipleship, is our means of interacting with the world.
0: I think so. But it
1: just got me to thinking today, that I'm just looking at this going, man, not only is that just like a good way to do things, but that's the only way it works. And we have a litany of examples that proves that when we try to do it any other way, oh my goodness... Like we can't handle the power and the authority every time yeah. because we're not God. Yep. So as you enter into because we're 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 at the end of our time, I think. As you enter into a world that is looking less and less Christian, Christian rejoice. This is your time to shine. Right. Literally and figuratively. This is where your light shines. Because it gets easier. And that sounds counterintuitive. But this is where the Holy Spirit does his best work is when you are most stressed from the world around you. His best accomplishments, his strongest work and your brightest light shines when the world is at its darkest. And we don't necessarily think like that, but we should.
2: That Be- is really
1: encouraging. It is. And that's what, see, that's what I was trying to get to eventually. Yeah. And I don't know how good of a job we did. No, I'm
2: encouraged.
1: <laughs> All right. Hey, if Lou is encouraged, it's a good week. We will fix that next week. No, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are in trouble next week. <laughs> No,
2: <clears throat> no, that's encouraging.
1: Because this is the area of the world. This is the p- the period in human history. Whether it's been in China in the 20th century and into now, whether it was you know Catholic Europe during the Middle Ages, or whether it was the Roman Empire in the early part of the first millennia, mm-hmm. this is where the Holy Spirit's like, okay, people, get in line because because right. now I work and this is where your comfort comes from and this is where your strength comes from and this is where your wisdom is applied and this is where your churches are built up because this is where you're supposed to be Mm -hmm. not friendly with the world Mm -hmm. but drawing battle lines against it because you recognize that this world is not your home and even when it tries to be friendly and even when it looks like we have dominion we really don't because at the end of the day the corruption is always present so this is where it gets good because this is where we should be at home, and we're we're not always there. Mm-hmm. But this is where you get to encourage yourself and gird yourself for battle, to use a biblical term, mm-hmm. and prepare yourself for what is to come. Nice, so, that's really good. Okay, so what have we learned here today, Christian? <laughs> We've learned that it is possible for us to be positive and encouraging. Oh, this is Caleb. <laughs> I'm sorry, but we did it because we're going to a dark, dark place. So, all right, lessons of the day: the world is always going to be dark. Mm. But the light shines in the darkness. And Christian, God has not abandoned you, and that light will shine no matter what may befall you. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye. Bye.